Uh, turn with me to the book of Titus. Uh, we just finished in the book of First and Second Timothy, and so the next book after that is a book called Titus. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible as a gift from us to you, as uh, we just appreciate you guys being here with us and want to make sure that the Word of God is in people's hands. And so if you'd be so kind of follow along with me, there's this interesting passage that is found in this third chapter, um, and what we're going to be preaching through the here today. So in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us, by, excuse me, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your word. Lord, you know the, uh, the heaviness maybe that some of us bring to our gathering this morning. Others, um, Lord, just a, a season of celebration, God. Um, Lord, you know exactly where we are. You know our hearts. You know our motives. You know, Lord, where we currently just rest. Lord, you know where we currently place our hope. And so, Lord, as many of us are maybe struggling and and standing on on false Christ or counterfeit Christ in our own life, Lord, as we have created functional saviors for us to stand under and on top of, Lord, we pray, Jesus, that your word would speak boldly and clearly here today. Lord, you know my heart. Uh, you know, uh, Lord, the, the wandering and the waywardness. And so, Lord, I pray that even this morning that you would show me as a proclaimer of the gospel, Lord, a measure of grace that is beyond my own understanding, Lord, that you would help me, God, to, to speak, Lord, with compassion and with faithfulness to your word. And Lord, not by my mere doing or, or by the use of words coming from my mouth, but Lord, we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would truly do something magnificent in the life of this body, the body of Mission Church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can be seated today. Well, today we continue in this sermon series called uh, "Here I Stand," and this is our third series, our third sermon within this series, as we are breaking down and, and looking at some of the the core foundational beliefs of those of us who are in Christ that we should we should both be standing under and on top of um, the Word of Christ and the personhood of Christ, and the, the glory of God, and, and through faith, and through grace. And as, as we've seen these truths, I believe, actually coming from the Scripture, and, and yet over and over throughout the course of the history of, of Christianity, we have seen a resurgence in the, the need to once again return back to these things. And so this has been a, a kind of basic Christianity boot camp, as we've been looking at the importance of of what is known throughout the history of the Reformation and beyond as the five solas. So the first week we we talked about Jesus being the reformer and that that Jesus was calling us as we have gone wayward in our society, that he was calling us once again back to himself, back to his word, back to grace, back to faith. And then last week we picked up on the the first one and one of the key ones that all of these other ones uh, will kind of come from because if we don't have this one, um, then none of the rest of these make any sense. And that is that we believe in sola scriptura. And that means that we believe in scripture alone as the ultimate, sufficient, inerrant, 
an authority in our lives. Not that we don't have other authorities like a boss or a parent or something like that, but that when it all said and done, what we want to do is, is that we're going to stand in and rest upon the Scripture as the ultimate authority. As the, the person and work of Jesus, as he has given us this gift of his very word, then it, that from Genesis to Revelation, that every dot, every tittle, every, every exclamation point, every, every period, every piece of, of language that is placed within that book is the very breathed out word of God. And so if we're going to have argument, if we're going to have disagreement, if we're going to have celebration, um, if we're going to have praise, if we're going to have worship, if there's going to be anything within our lives or in the lives of the church, then we need to come to, to the understanding that we're going to wrestle with that and in that and celebrate that from, from the understanding that we are both under and on top of the, the Word of God, that it is the authority. So today we come to the second or the third sermon, but the second of the solas here as we will be talking about sola gratia, which means the word sola is a Latin gratia is as well. It means grace alone, grace alone. And the aim this morning is for us to understand that in this truth, as scripture lays out before us, is that those whom have been saved have been saved by grace alone. Okay. Now, at the initial statement of me making that, it just seems like there's a, this kind of perpetual nod from the church. Yes, and amen. But I want you to know that it is in this term, sola gratia, that there has been much division within the history of humanity or in the history of the church. Even currently in 2019, almost 2020, that, that there is something about this phrase that with, even within the church can easily cause dividing lines between people who are considering themselves to be brothers and sisters in Christ. But when you start to think about grace and such songs as Amazing Grace and all the songs that we sing about in reference to grace, again, it can be really easy to shout, amen, yes, I get that, I believe that. That should be a, a foundational thing that every one of us who are in Jesus claim to believe in. And yet, it's a very divisive thing. During the Reformation of the early 1500s and that lasted several years after that, um, we need to get that there are many people, even then and now, who would say such things as that they believe that salvation is by grace. The problem is, is that they have a problem when we say that salvation is by grace alone. It's that small little word there, it's the solo word, alone, only. We're saved by grace only. See, the earthly Catholic church and many of our brothers and sisters today will say such things that Jesus has saved us by grace. And what they mean by is this, is that, they, that God in some way has made grace available to all people, but it is the responsibility of man and woman to activate that grace, to cause that grace to be effective. That grace is offered by God, that he has his perpetual hand and gift of grace being extended to all of humanity, but it is left up to their enlightened version of uh, the doctrine of free will that enables every man and woman that the choice is yours and that you must cause the effect and not God. So they'll easily say things like that, that God is... Yes, saved us by grace. And that's what they mean by that. But I would contend, as I believe that the Bible contends, that that is not what the Bible says about grace. That we are saved not by this perpetual hand of grace or this outhanding of grace from God and he is, he is waiting on humanity to, to, to take it, but rather that the Bible speaks that, that we are saved by grace alone, that there is, there is a condition, and the condition, though, is not on the state of man, but the condition is on the sovereign working hand of an almighty God who is gracious, and that he works alone in our salvation. 
Sola gratia, grace alone, not just merely saved by grace, but that we are saved by grace alone, turns our attention from ourselves and puts all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the power of salvation and of everything else in God's very hands. And this is why the Reformers and and why Baptists historically believe in this doctrine and why we at mission hold to this doctrine is because we believe in sola scriptura, that we believe that the scripture is our authority and that since scripture is our ultimate authority, the end authority of our lives, then that means no matter what happens in popular thought, no matter what happens in, in pop psychology, no matter what happens in Enlightenment errors or any of these sorts of things, that those are all underneath the umbrella and must rest underneath the authority of Scripture because it is our authority. The Scripture alone is our authority. It is the sufficient thing. It is inerrant. And so we recognize that our, our, our cultural shift away from the Scripture especially in America, where it has become very easy for us to become our own gods, that we have a a, a way of of edifying and and lifting personal freedom and democracy and independence and a person's right to choose above the character and nature of God and also above what God says in his word. See, this conflict is still taking place. Are we saved by grace? Or are we saved by grace alone? And you need to get it this this morning, ladies and gentlemen. That one little word there, alone, causes a sea of difference between those two theological viewpoints. A sea of of difference. And so this morning, that's our hope, is to ask this question. That's our desire. That's our aim, is to ask that question, are we saved by grace alone, or are we saved by grace, or are we saved by something else? And for you and I to come to rest and ask this question then, where do I stand, and where do we stand as a congregation? To understand this, when we look into the book of Titus, so if you're there still with me in in Titus chapter 3, let's begin here. Paul is writing this young kind of apprentice of his, much like very similar story to that of Timothy. Paul is Titus's mentor in the faith. He's pastoring the pastor. He's trying to teach him how to pastor people. He's trying to teach him sound theology. And so Titus is one of these men in the band of brothers around Paul. And so Paul writes to Titus, and this is what he says in verse 3 of chapter 3. For we ourselves were once, and that idea once there means this, this continual, like over and over and over on just repeat, Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So Paul starts out here in telling Tim, uh, Titus specifically about this idea that he is, he's wanting us to understand and to be reminded of the condition of man. In this condition, he says what? That we are continually foolish. That we're continually disobedient. That we're continually led astray. That we are continually slaves to various passions and pleasures. That this is the description of mankind apart from the person and work of Jesus. So this week, as you came in today, normally I'm not a fill-in-the-blank kind of guy, but as you can see, I've got several scriptures here today. I know that we got MCs kicking back up this week. I thought this would be handy for you to have. And so when we look at this, we, before we can understand that we are saved by grace alone, then you and I must be reminded about the condition of man apart from Jesus. 
continually foolish, continually disobedient, continually led astray, continually uh, being slaves and enslaved to various passions and pleasures. But the Bible just doesn't stop there with Titus, does it? Early on, we see inside of the Scripture, we see inside of the Scripture, such as in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that we have all fallen short of God's perfect standards. That means everyone, that every person has, has fallen short on God's perfect standard. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We see in the scripture as well that, that no one seeks God on their own. That it is impossible to even seek after God. That this idea that you had this God-shaped void in your heart and that you're constantly trying to find something in this world to, to fill it and, and that you really just need to seek after God or even the idea of a seeker-sensitive church doesn't exist in the Scripture because the Scripture would tell us that, that no one seeks God in and of their own desire, even out of their own freedom and will, but rather, as according to Romans, that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. We continue on with what the Scripture is, is explaining in the condition of man that, that no one can even understand the things of God apart from God. As we see in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I don't know when's the last time that you've shared the gospel with somebody who is an outright non-believer. Okay? They're not a cultural Christian, um, and maybe they are a cultural Christian, um, but it can be really hard for them to understand the concepts of the Scripture. I had several students over the last several weeks tell me such things as, you know, we believe that the Bible is true, or at least that it was true for a particular time, but since our culture has evolved, since we've become um, awakened to even more things, and we've, we've grown and matured, uh, then the Bible isn't necessarily relevant as it once was in all occasions. When you say certain things to them about what the Bible says, they will often repeat back to you such things as, well, I just don't understand that. I, I don't believe that. And the Bible is very clear here. It's one of the reasons why I love following Jesus and, and why, as God was working in my heart, where Christianity started to make more and more sense because the more you study it, the, the more unveiling of this world happens. No one can understand the things of God. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So what does this mean? It means that all of our intentions are wicked. You know, we need to be very careful, especially in the South, because we, we love to say things like, bless your heart, and then that, that allows you the freedom to say whatever you want to about the person you're about to speak about, right? Because you prayed for him first. Okay? We'll also say things like, well, you just need to follow your heart. Right? Well, what's your heart telling you? You just need to speak from the heart. And yet the Bible is clear, what about our hearts? That they're wicked. That they're easily deceived and that they can deceive us easily apart from Jesus. And we see that in Jeremiah 17, 9 where it says our hearts are deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Think about how bipolar your emotions are. I live with a 14-year-old girl. I know more about the Loch Ness Monster than I do a 14-year-old girl. It's like, who is this alien that's in my house? Okay? Up and down, emotional, just, well, I just don't, and you, if you ask things like, well, why do you feel that way? Or how are you feeling? I don't know. Right? And they can easily go from being in tears of, I don't know why I feel like that, I don't know what's wrong, to like, hey, how's it going? Right? 
Y'all don't know anybody like that, right? It gets better, right? Yes. I want to sleep in my bed tonight, right? We see that even in the scripture that even the good things that we do are filthy. Now, we don't understand when we talk about the condition of man is that the, the Bible is clear. We're, we're, we're really bad, as you can see, but we're not as bad as we could be, that God is even showing all of creation common grace, that he's withholding us, that we, we even are, are born with some sense of morality. So when we say things like that you can't ever do anything good, that is, that is true. We can be moral beings. The issue is the condition of our heart behind those things. That even apart from Jesus, that our good things we do are filthy. And this is according to Isaiah 64.4. This is not something that we become, but that we are born this way. This is the plight of man. See, most young people and most people in the United States of America believe that, that humanity is born neutral. That they're born neutral. You're not born good or bad. But, but rather, the state of your home and what you see from your parents is what you ultimately become. So you see your parents do bad things, then you do bad things. You see your parents sin, so then you start sinning. But if you really ask a parent, when's the last time your kid has seen you bite somebody? What do they hopefully say? I've never seen it. But if you've been to kindergarten, you've seen a bunch of kids biting people, right? It used to be a bigger thing. Maybe that was back in the 80s. But pinching, I'm going to pinch you, right? I'm going to bite you. And, I mean, kids would just rip a plug out of each other. And if they learn, oh, you learn that from your parents. Really? No. See, no matter how precious your little baby is, um, it doesn't take long to be a parent to realize even that newborn child is trying to manipulate you with their tears, of which they haven't learned from their parents. Right. We see that, that this is not something that we become, but that we are born this way. Psalm 51.5, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 58.3, even from birth the wicked go astray, the womb they are wayward and speak lies. The Bible says in Romans 6.20 that we are slaves to sin. It says in Romans 5.12 and in 1 Corinthians, it tells us that we inherited our sin nature from Adam. It tells us in Job um, that we are because we are sinners, we cannot choose good. I think it's interesting this passage out of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 13, we sang about it in one of our first songs. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. What's the result in the penalty of all of this? Well, it's physical and spiritual death. Without sin, Adam and Eve never, they never physically die. And yet because of sin, what do we have? We have, we have cancer and, and pneumonia and the all, all, car wrecks, all of these sorts of things. But all of that is a, a, a shadow of the spiritual death that has happened. No doubt about it, today I really wanted to preach out of Ephesians, but since we recently covered that, I'm going to talk some more about it next week. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. For the wage of sin, according to Romans 6.23, right? For the wage of sin is death. Ladies and gentlemen, for us to understand the, the nature of by being saved by grace alone, then, then you and I need to be humbled at the reality of who we are in spite of living in a culture who is trying to convince everyone about how awesome that we are. That we're not really that bad. 
because what do we love to do? Man, we don't love to compare ourselves to an almighty, holy, sufficient God, but we love to compare us and our lives and our heartbeats to everyone else around us. And so when I look at, at myself and then I compare that to my college students or the guys I work with at Program Living or the people that I see on the news, then man, I am doing pretty good. But when I rest under the authority of the scripture, when, I, when we look at the, the state and the condition of man according to the scripture, it has been known, it has been said that this is all wrapped up into what we call total depravity or, or the total inability. But I, I, I love the, the scriptural statement of it is this, you and I, brothers and sisters, apart from Jesus, are dead. You are dead in your sin. I am dead in my sin. It's not merely that you have some sort of spiritual cold or that you have some spiritual sniffle or spiritual allergy, but, but rather the Bible is clear that, that you and I are dead in our sins. And as has been said well before me, is that dead people don't make decisions. Dead people don't make decisions. Dead people are dead, spiritually speaking. You do not seek God. I do not seek God. I cannot do good. Can it be horizontally on this earth good? Yes, of course it can. Those are the moral things. But, but in your moral standing before an almighty God, the scripture is clear over and over and over and over and over again that you and I are completely depraved and because of sin that is our very nature and that even if it was being offered out out to us that we are unable to make that choice. It's what Luther, in his probably most famous book, um, The Bondage of the Will, would speak of. And that is heavy. People in the church, we don't often remember these things, or we don't even know these things. People in our culture and in our world these things cannot be true of me. They're not true of me. And yet if we believe in sola scriptura, in scripture alone as our ultimate authority, our final authority, then we must come to this conclusion. But I don't know about you this morning, but I'm glad that the Bible doesn't end there. We need to feel the weightiness of it. But I'm glad that the Bible doesn't leave us in that spot. We need to never forget it, as we are accustomed to doing. But I'm glad that the Bible does not leave us there. Even in Paul's letter to Titus, he doesn't leave us there. Look in verse 4. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. If, if you're like me, and my, and my Bible mostly looks like a road map, then it looks like there's drawings, pictures, underlines, squares, boxes. If you have your own Bible today or your own device, I mean, it, it should be underlined, big bolded inside of our scripture. Even that term there at the beginning of verse 5, he saved us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And who is the us? The dead men and women. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, and it's, it's not that, that we are just dead in our sin, but we are dead in loving it, that we are militant against God, that we are living as atheists, and yet we're the God of our own creation, that, that here we are declaring war over and over and over and over and over and over against an almighty, holy holy, glorious God, and yet, knowing all of those things about us that we just read from all of those scriptures, what does God do in his character? He saves. He saves us. 
but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Anybody confessionally in here that can be easy for you to write people off? Especially if they've harmed you? We like to use terms in our culture like, they're dead to me. If, if we, I mean, let's pretend we're all acting like it practically anyway, that you and I are God. And your enemy is relentless in trying to destroy your kingdom. How would you respond? And yet that is the, the picture that we have between, between God and man. And yet God's nature, praise be to God, is not like ours. See, the issue is, is that God should not allow anyone into his kingdom. And yet, in spite of our willful disobedience, in spite of our deadness, in spite of our declaration of war against him, God in his goodness and loving kindness puts his character, his divine character on display in the dispensing of grace to those who do not deserve it. That's the God. The God of the scripture. Brothers and sisters, there is good news this morning at the realization that before you ever desired God, that if you are in Christ this morning, before you ever desired God, that God desired you. And that's what the battle of Sola Gratia is over. Before I ever desired God. That's why we read the Ephesians 1 passage earlier, before the foundations of the earth. See, people get really freaked out when you use terms like from the Bible, like predestination. I don't know that there's any better news in the Bible. Before the foundations, before you ever, before you ever desired God. And some of you, it's been awesome to watch as your hunger for the Lord is manifesting itself. As some of you are growing and maturing in Christ's likeness. To know that that, that is something that God just all of a sudden decided to dispense grace in you into that moment. But before the foundations of the earth before that foundation, before the creation of anything on the planet, before you even knew that there was a God that existed, God knew you, created you for his purpose. And if you're in Christ, that he, he desired you, his enemy, his enemy. What good news. Before the foundations of the world, salvation is is sovereignly initiated and empowered by whom? God alone. In grace alone. What a beautiful truth for us this morning. But when? But when? When what? When I was dead, when I was falling short, when I was not seeking God, when I couldn't understand the things of God, when my intentions were were wicked, when my heart was deceitful, when my goodness was actually a filthy rag, when when I was born, when I was a slave to sin, when I was just in this heritage nature, when when I was a sinner that could not choose good, when when I was deserving of physical and spiritual death, when I was on repeat being foolish and disobedient and being led astray and a slave to my various passions, and pleasures, but when the goodness of God, in spite of knowing all of those things, past, present, and future, He saved you. That's how powerful Sola Gratia is.
according to this next section of this passage, reading on from verse 5 to, to 7 here, he saved us not because of works done by, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk some more about that actually next week. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Saved by grace of God alone. See, inside of the Reformation, it, again, the, the earthly Catholics, they would have said things like, well, do you believe that you're saved by grace? Yes, you're saved by grace, but there needs to be an addition to. You're saved by grace and water baptism. That's why you, if you administer baptism as a, an infant, then what you're declaring is that that child has been given grace. That he or she is covered in the grace of God because of that, baptis, that baptism. That it's not just in grace alone, but it's grace and something. And this was happening over and over and over and over again. And, and before we become kind of arrogant and thinking about that was something that was happening back then. But it is the same struggle in every one of our hearts. That we're cool with grace. But it's got to be plus something. And yet, what does the Bible say? We are not saved by Works. Not because of works. See, brothers and sisters, there's really only two religions in the world. There's the, the work your way to heaven by your own choice, and that's all the other religions. Work your way to enlightenment, work your way to nirvana, work your way to Allah, work your way to uh, this understanding, if you don't know much about modern Judaism, is what they believe is, is that there's not necessarily a hell, but rather there are degrees from which you will be close to God. And all of that degrees, closeness to God, will be determined on how righteous and how good that you are. And that hell will actually be probably taking place in heaven, but it'll be the people like back there like Kyler, um, who, who he hasn't been very good. Hey, Kyler. All right, he's not been very good. And if I represent Jesus and I represent God, then, then Kyler, though he's in the room, is experiencing hell because he realizes that within this life, he could have done much more to be closer to God, but he chose not to, and that's hell. All the other religions in the world believe in a works-based salvation. It is grace plus something. And so when we begin to believe that intertwined inside of Christianity, then we seek to be Christian. We cease to be Christian. We have this idea that is innately placed within our sinful nature that we want to, man, we want to work our way to heaven. That we in some way, uh, God has offered this to us and our work is that acceptance of it. I'm going to activate it within my own will, within my own desire that, that literally if you were to take a pool of people and these people are saved and these people are not and, and they've done exactly all of the same stuff, why did these people choose Jesus and these? Well, these people over here can honestly say they were just smarter, they were, there was something in them that was just a little bit better, but that is not what the Scripture, if anything, the Scripture paints a picture of us all going to the cemetery, and inside the cemetery, let's say that there's 20 people there, and they were all mass murderers so that you don't play into this and be like, well, you know, 19 killings is less than 20, so, but, but let's just say they've killed every person inside of this cemetery, that there's 20 dead bodies in the grave, they've all killed multiple people, they were just the most wretched of people on the planet. There's nothing good in them. They are dead. And yet God in his sovereignty comes to whomever he wills. And with the elixir of Christ, summon them from death into life. They all are equally deserving of punishment. 
They were all equally deserving of resting in that death. And yet God, but when God, the goodness and the loving kindness of God and the Savior appeared, he saved us. See, the Bible doesn't declare that Jesus is a possible way of salvation. The Bible declares that no, Jesus came to save. Behold the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. That Jesus has not just come to provide an avenue up the mountain to eventually get to a God that all the paths are going to lead to. But rather the Bible declares that that no, Jesus has come to save. And that Jesus has saved. And as Jesus is on the cross and he is paying it all and he is saying it is finished. That is a, a declaration. It is a it is a legal declaring that these people, past, present, and future, my church, those whom I will save, are completely justified in Christ. It's the beauty of grace alone. Jesus is the Savior exclusively. Grace is not God ignoring our sin. But on the contrary, on the contrary, at all cost, does something to destroy it. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus has come. Jesus has become both our past, present, and future sin. See, I can fall into the mistake of thinking, well, Jesus has saved me up to a point, right? And then after that point, he saved me for all of my sin up to a point when, I, when he saved me. And then, then it's kind of iffy from then on. In spite of him knowing every sin that you're going to create from tomorrow and beyond, his goodness and his grace was poured upon you if you're in him. Like the worst things imaginable. That if you are in Christ... He did not die upon the cross to some sort of thing. Well, this grace is bestowed upon you as long as you don't blank. But on the contrary, in spite of knowing all of those things, past, present, and future, God has not stopped counting your sin or punishing your sin on himself in Jesus. That he is infinitely punishing and counting your sin against the person and work of Jesus, my sin against the person and work of Jesus. It's not that all of a sudden God just said, whoop, sin doesn't exist. But no, he's saying sin exists. You are guilty, but I'm making him guilty for you. This beautiful exchange of of my sin for Christ's righteousness that in some way that I can become boastful in thinking that I could dream that up, That I could conjure God to move in such a way. And yet, we are shown the beautiful, I mean, do we understand this? It's like, no, if I am truly in Christ today, if I am truly in Jesus today, no matter what I do tomorrow, guess where I am? In Christ. And if you grew up like I did, in religious pharisaical, and if you think those two people don't exist, stick around church long enough, I'll give you some names after service. Because our natural default is to always to fall back into that. And do, do, do you really get that? If you're truly in Jesus today, I'm talking about no matter what you do tomorrow. You've not lost your position because your position wasn't deemed by something you can make up on your own. It was something declared by God. It was determined by God. And I don't know if it's left up to you. I had somebody when I was in college and I was in my cage stage with all this um, say to me as we were talking to somebody, he said, well, at the end of the day, If it's God's choice or mine, I believe in God enough to believe that he makes better choices than I do. Because I've got a whole line of broken choices that I wish I wouldn't have made. 
And yet God doesn't. God doesn't. God is not this evil ogre. God is good. God is kind. Get this this morning. The guilty have been made innocent. And the innocent, the truly innocent, can never be declared guilty again. If one has truly been saved, and they are, they are saved indeed now and forever, to declare a person can lose their salvation is to declare that that person is more powerful than God. can't lose why you didn't gain on your own. Sola gratia reminds us that in Christ alone, in grace alone, that we are the undeserving recipients of an almighty goodness and kind God has bestowed this upon us, that he has not perpetually held out his hands this gift of grace, but rather has placed it into a dead man and dead woman's heart and has raised her from the dead, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 29 through 30, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 10, but by grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Who is the active agent here? Just coming to that realization like I was passive in my salvation. I could not move the hand of God by anything that I did for Him to show me and give me this grace. Unmerited favor. Just as Lazarus contributed nothing to his resurrection, neither did you or I. See, brothers and sisters, for those of us who are in Christ, you've been saved from the penalty and the power of sin. The Bible declares that if the Son has set you free, you are free, what? Indeed. waking of grace then causes you to see God and yourself and the purpose of humanity in a completely new way, doesn't it? That you're awakened. When I was a kid, I used to go to sleepovers at my friend's house and since since I was a little kid, I've always had this weird sleep pattern. I, I'm a, I don't know if I'm like narcoleptic or what, but literally I can be like at a certain time be talking to you and then be asleep. And um, I've been like that since I was a little bit kid. My dad always said I had a switch. It didn't matter where we were, just whoop, there it went. I mean, I just in the middle of Lowe's, Walmart, it didn't matter where I was, I was out. I've always been also a kid that got up really early. So when I was a little bitty boy, some of you guys are old enough to remember this, but the television actually used to turn off. Y'all remember that? And at a certain time at night, it would just go from like a show to... Right? And in Kentucky, when it turned back on, it would play my old Kentucky home. Does anybody remember this? And I remember that for years... Because every Saturday morning, there used to be this thing called cartoons. Cartoons are just like a phenomenon. It's kind of like going outside and cartoons, two things kids don't know anything much about. Or the cartoons that they now watch are just really weird. Um, really strange. But I would get up, and we're talking about like before Jesus gets up, like really early in the morning. And as a small kid, I would go and I would sit in front of the TV like in Poltergeist. And if you've seen that movie, I'm sorry. And I would sit in front of the for hours waiting for it to come on. Because everything else was asleep, but I was awake. I would do the same thing at sleepovers. That's when it got really weird. Because I've never been one of these kids, even my teenage years, where I could sleep till like 12 or 1 o'clock. I never got that in people. I just think like, man, you've wasted a day. You'll never get back. Right? So it didn't matter. I'd be at your house. 
And my buddy, Corey, specifically, I'd go stay the night at his house, and, man, I'd wake up. And then it's like, I'm at somebody else's house. And so you're just watching your friend sleep, which is even more strange. I wish you'd wake up. You're trying not to be rude, unless you're my daughter, because then she's like, somebody's awake in here. Okay? Similar picture in our relationship with Jesus. We were once asleep. And then we're awake. And when you're awake, though, you begin to recognize the others around you that are still asleep. They're not seeing the world the same way that you're seeing it. They're in a dream world. Right? you're awake. I mean, does anybody know what I'm talking about today? I mean, I don't know if he is or not, but when I start hearing from a former life, my favorite rapper say things like, James Corbin, when you're asleep, do you know that you're asleep? Or you're like, I'm asleep. And he was like, no. But when you're awake, do you have to convince yourself awake that you're awake? And Kanye said this past week, he said, no, because you're, you're awake. And it's crazy to me that a rapper of crazy knows better. You know what his mentor is teaching him? The five solos. That's how he's discipling him right now. And when you feel, hear a rapper like Kanye West come out and say, I was asleep. And now I'm awake. And most people in church don't get that theology. Brothers and sisters, you were asleep and loving it. I love to sleep. How about you? Can I get an amen? I need some more of it. We're asleep apart from Jesus. You are asleep and loving it. And then Jesus wakes you up. And Jesus wakes us up. Saying I can do something to save myself is like looking at Plato and saying, okay, become the Empire State Building. It's impossible. So how do we respond to this really quickly? One, we respond to this, we should all be very humbled this morning. Because, man, I don't, do, I don't deserve this. I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. I am far worse than any of you believe that I am. And the humility that, that Jesus, like, man, I do not deserve this. Why did, why did God pour out his grace upon me and not this guy? I have no idea. I have no idea. And that is so humbling this morning. Because I'm deserving of the same exact wrath. And I want you to know, I keep trying to go back to sleep. And I can't. And I've been trying for now going on 20 years. Because sleep sounds so good, doesn't it? Egypt sounds so good to me. It's so attractive to me. And yet God keeps that nudging. Come back. Don't fall asleep. We should be humble this morning. Our lives and our corporate gatherings, one of the things, again, I did not grow up Reformed or Baptist. But one of the things I miss about the holiness movement that I grew up in was even if it was based off of really terrible theology because they all believed that they made the choice to save themselves. At least they were excited about it. If anybody should be excited both in our personal and corporate praise and worship, shouldn't it be those of us who hold the sovereign grace? 
and yet they're much more, much more like a high school graduation than they are a celebration. And I can't reconcile. I don't know how to reconcile that. I've been really asking the Lord to help me. Three, rest in grace. First one, humility. Second one, personal praise and corporate praise and worship. Third one is rest. Every one of our defaults is to try to work. Even if we're cool with Jesus saving us, what are we all trying to do now? Keep ourselves saved by our works. So we, our default is to do that or to make grace really cheap and to say things, I'm going to live however I want to live because what? I'm saved. Legalism and rebellion are the antithesis of grace. Number four, cherished. This truth should be cherished. Kyler and Sandy are in our MC, and it's been a joy to get to know little Journey. And uh, between her little anecdotes that, that Sandy like bombards us all with about little stories from little Journey and that little voice that she has, it doesn't take long being around Journey to, to recognize that Journey has a prized possession. It's a little ducky. And if you've seen that ducky, that is a ratty, nasty, dirty, little disease-infested. For people who such germaphobes, they let their daughter pack around a diseased little, tore-up, dirty, nasty ducky. I don't get it. I guess they rub oils all over it, and that cancels out the sin. But Journey can't function without the ducky. She's constantly longing for the ducky. She packs that ducky. It's worn out and tattered. Why? It's her prized possession. It's always with her. It's her comfort. And the great thing about grace is it never gets tattered like a ducky. But there's an infinite supply of it. We should cherish it like our most prized possession. The fifth thing here is that it should be our most, it, it should provide for us confident and courageous evangelism. Why? Because you can't save them. It's not about a perfect speech. It's not about having all the points. Right? But sola gratia should provide for us just this this longing and confident and courageous evangelism that is just spewing forth from our mouth because why? We believe it's the only way that you can be saved and that God is going to use the preaching of his word to do what? To just pour out ridiculously, like hilariously, his grace upon undeserving people. I want to leave you with this story and then I'm going to pray for us you're going to come. If you are a believer, you can partake of the communion elements if you'd like to give of your offering. But I, I want to leave you with this story. I really, I'm actually, I'm going to come down here. Um, I want to read you this. I read this from um, a man that means a lot to me, Pastor Ray Ortland. It's the first person I've, I've heard say this. Maybe other people said it. I don't know. Maybe he stole it from somebody else. I'm going to steal it from him. Listen to this. We were married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in this way, but he did not understand our weakness. He came home every evening and asked, so how was your day? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything I put on your to-do list? So many demands and expectations and hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy him. We forgot things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings. And the worst of it was, he was always right. But his remedy was always the same. 
do better tomorrow. We didn't because we couldn't. And then Mr. Law died. And we remarried, this time to Mr. Grace. Our new husband, Jesus, comes home in every evening, and the house is still a mess. The children are being naughty. Dinner is burning on the stove. And we have even had other men in the house during the day. Still, he sweeps us into his arms and says, I love you. I chose you. I died for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And our hearts melt. We don't understand such love. We expect him to despise us and reject us and humiliate us. But he treats us so well. We are so glad to belong to him now and forever. And we long to be fully pleasing to him. Being married to Mr. Law never changed us. But being married to Mr. Grace is changing us deep within, and it shows. Let's pray.